Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds. We did it, y'all. We made it to Election Day. Maybe you're listening to this while you're standing in line to vote. Maybe you've already cast your ballot weeks before. Or maybe you're like me. You voted this morning, and now you're sitting on the couch in front of the TV, obsessively refreshing Vox.com with pizza in hand, waiting with bated breath for the returns to come in. At the time we're recording this, we don't know how the election will shake out. No one does. So we wanted to talk to some people who will be the first to find out and ask them, how exactly are winners declared? Different news outlets have different methods, but basically they all do the same thing. Use data from exit polls, surveys, and official returns to project winners as the votes come in. And they're usually the first place an election winner is called. Here at Vox, we use the Associated Press's calls. But many of our television colleagues use a different resource called the National Election Pool. The NEP is a group of networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, and CNN, that all use the same election data compiled by Edison Research. We wanted to know more, so we reached out to Rob Farbman, and he sat down with us last week to tell us how all of this works. My name is Rob Farbman. I'm uh, executive vice president at Edison Research, and I've been doing some form of election coverage and election polling um, for my whole career. What we do is really in two parts. One is surveys to analyze the elections, conducting exit polls, pre-election absentee voter polls, and early voter polls. Really not so much for projecting elections, but more for analyzing elections, although at times it plays a part in projecting elections. And then the other part of what we do is collecting all of the vote nationwide from every municipality in the country, and that's uh, 4,607 different municipalities. And we're the ones who really just collect and present the data to the television networks, to CBS, CNN, ABC, and NBC, along with our other clients. And we do that tabulation for them because it's really a very slow process in the United States counting votes um, <laughs> because there are 4,607 municipalities and they all have their own rules and their own schedules. It's a process that requires a lot of labor and a lot of money. So the networks pool their resources together, get it, to collect the data they need to make the calls about the races. And we really do work kind of as a partnership in that our main goal is to, uh, certainly for projections and the vote count, we want to get it right and they want to get it right. Although there's tons of competition on air, they all want higher ratings and they want to do a great job. We basically project the winner of a race, Edison Research, to the national election pool. The uh, members of the NEP can make their own decision, however. They do make their own decisions. They can call it when we call it. They can call it earlier than we call it, which happens sometimes when we're more cautious, meaning, you know, some of them might go with our call and others might say, oh, we're going to wait. But all four networks and Edison are very conservative in projecting elections. You might think there's a lot of cutthroat competition to report the winner first, but Rob says the networks are more concerned about getting it right. Some of that might be PTSD from the 2000 presidential election. So the election being called and then rescinded, that was actually just based on vote counts and it wasn't based on polling or exit polling per se, but that made everyone a lot more cautious. That was kind of a turning point, I think. 
in all honesty, being first isn't even an advantage for their broadcast in that, you know, they want people to keep watching. So, you know, oh, let's, let's call this as fast as we can. Just being able to beat a competitor to a call is not such an advantage. As far as the evening goes, the data that eventually becomes a call goes through Rob first. And what I'll be doing is just looking at the data, make, doing quality checks is basically what I'll be doing as far as the exit poll, looking for data that looks like it could be inaccurate or punched in wrong or whatever, just to make sure the survey is as accurate as it can be by, by poll closing or earlier. And then when the polls close, it's all about the vote count. And again, it's, it's just such a gigantic logistical project collecting these votes from all over the country. We have thousands of one-day employees around the country calling in results to phone rooms. We also collect a lot of data through data feeds, which we love because it makes it a lot easier. But the logistics of, you know, a thousand people on the exit poll, several thousand vote count reporters, and then hundreds and hundreds of telephone operators, we use around, for 2020, I believe we use like nine different call centers to collect the data. It was just uh, massive. There are lots of logistics. Some states make sending the data really easy. Others, not so much. And even in states that give their data, the NEP typically will send someone to go to the county office and report back as votes are counted. And this isn't just a one-night affair. We do research for months and months, calling each county finding out all the details of uh, their vote, how they count it, what will be released, you know, what type of vote, absentee or election day or whatever, you know, when, what order they're going to release it in. So it's a really uh, long process doing the research and then hiring all these people and then training them and then coordinating them, calling it in to our uh, system. So people wonder, like, what we do, you know, like, uh, what do you do when it's not election day? And it's like, oh, we have around, you know, we have hundreds of people working the whole year. <laughs> Lots of emails and phone calls. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to understand how complicated it is because it does seem kind of simple to some people, but it, it's, really, it's really difficult pulling this off. How do you know when to call a race? Like, how long is your evening, your week? How do you know to say, okay, we have enough information for this, let's move on? Yeah, I mean, that's become much more complicated, particularly since... 2020, when so many more people started voting absentee and by mail. And that's been part of the controversy, you know, with, with uh, President Trump as far as the early vote is often very different than the vote that's counted later. Um, in California, millions and millions of votes don't get counted until late that night or the next day or the next week. So in that case, the Democrats are always going to have a lot of votes in the bank late and in other states as well that are highly democratic, they're more likely to be the ones that are, that are by-mail votes that are going to be counted for many, many days and sometimes weeks. And so, so many people distrust the election process right now. I'm wondering, has that impacted the way you all do your job? Or, you know, like, how do, how do you handle this moment we're in? It certainly made it harder to hire the people we have to hire. I, you know, I mentioned we have to hire thousands of people you know, it's not a high-paying job. I mean, we pay fairly, but it's not like worth if you think you're going to be harassed or or something like that. There are people who just don't want to deal with it. I mean, 2020, we also had the, you know, uh, coronavirus. That, yeah, that made, yeah, that'll that, make that's people a, want to stay that's in. A whole, that's a whole different conversation, but that, that was really hard hiring people. But uh, it's definitely made it harder for us getting people to agree to participate, but it's mostly made it harder for election officials which is really sad, you know, that they feel threatened and they, they feel ostracized for being public servants. And generally, both Democratic and Republican election officials have always just been doing their jobs, you know, dutifully. And now they've been villainized. So that does trickle down to us because, you know, we rely on the cooperation of election officials for everything we do. Even if it's our right to exit poll, which it is, and it's our right to collect the votes, if they don't want to cooperate with us, they can make things really difficult for us. And some are less cooperative just because they have to deal with other stuff, people, people accusing them of cheating or people hanging out at, at uh, counting centers trying to observers or whatever they want to call themselves. So it really trickles down to us, making it more difficult for us as well. All right. Rob Farbman, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Nice to meet you. So that's how the information is collected. But what do networks do with that information once they have it? Find out 
after the break. Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Welcome back to The Weeds. Before the break, we talked with Rob Farbman about how the National Election Pool collects its data— but we wanted to know what the TV networks do with that data. I am Anthony Salvanto, Executive Director of Elections and Surveys at CBS News. And what I do is I oversee our polling and I oversee what we call our decision desk or our data desk on election night, which means we project the races and deliver to folks what we're seeing in real time. So I've obviously got a uh, busy night coming up. (laughs) (laughs) So... What does your evening on election night look like? Can you paint that picture for us? Walk us through your day slash evening slash coming days. So during the day, we have some embargoed data that comes from the exit poll, which the networks do. And so interviewers are out there talking to voters and reporting in. We see some of that early data. And then by 5 p.m., the floodgates start to open, if you will. And I will come back and brief folks and start reporting out some of the larger topics, like what was on voters' minds and where things stand with regard to what voters are saying they want and what concerns them. And then we sit down and start watching the votes come in. By 7 p.m., some of those key states have closed, and then we're rolling. Then we are trying to make those estimates in real time. We're going to be very transparent. I'm going to tell you, and I actually go on, and I'll tell you, this is what we're seeing so far, and this is what is still to come. And this is what turnout looks like if we can estimate it. And this is the regions that have reported. And these are the areas that haven't. And by the time we get into 8, 9 o'clock, now most of the states have closed. In the case of a midterms, obviously there's a lot of focus on what the House is doing, right? And the way we will do that is we'll start to make estimates of how many seats, at least at a minimum, each party is going to get. There are so many congressional districts after partisanship, after gerrymandering, et cetera. And this is a longer story. But we know that there are so many that uh, we know which way they're going to go, right? They're either heavily Democrat or, or heavily Republican. So those start to come on the board. And then we're looking for patterns of vote, especially in some of the more toss up races. And with all of that, 
put together, we can start to tell you, even before we've necessarily projected individual races, we can see the pattern of the types of voters who are voting, the types of districts and the way that they're trending. And if we can start to deliver a house estimate, we will then early in the, in the evening if we can. By the time we get on to 10, 11 o'clock at night, now we've seen probably a substantial amount of vote and we can start to hone in and we can tell you if a race is leaning to one side, even if we haven't projected it yet, we do that at CBS. And then it's a couple more, you know, shots of espresso and, and on <laughs> into, the, into the evening because I do urge everybody to have patience and, and we just, we go on from there. I want to go backwards for a moment. So how often do you all get batches of data as the evening is going on? Like, is it just this consistent sort of deluge of information? Are there batches? Like, what's happening there? So what happens is we uh, do get almost constant streams of information. And what that is, is you think about how decentralized the American voting process and system is, which many people think is a great thing. Um, and, and what it means is you've got municipalities counting ballots, you've got counties reporting ballots. The network pool will have either reporters at those county headquarters or reporters in the towns or reporters at, at the precincts. And so the models are constantly updating with this new information. And as they change, you can see one candidate might go into the lead, next candidate might go into the lead, depending on what regions have counted. Um, oftentimes, smaller counties report first. And that's why I always, you know, say to people, well, the early count, somewhat idiosyncratic, right? If it's, you've got, you could have a bunch of rural counties come in, but the big cities haven't reported, or you could have a bunch of election day votes come in and the absentee votes haven't reported. And that's also part of our process, too, is we're going to then ask those reporters or get info from those reporters what, what's been counted and what's left to be counted. So those are those direct reports or those direct feeds that we get. And that's a fairly constant stream when you think of the fact that there's so many data sources that there's so many places to get it from. So even if one county hasn't reported for a while, and there's plenty of times through the night when we're sitting there going, well, you know, we're still waiting for so-and-so county to report more, there's some other county that has. And there's always something changing. We talked with Rob Farbman at the National Election Pool, which, you know, CBS is a part of. Everyone gathers their resources together to do this exit polling but, you know, editorially, everyone is doing it differently. I mean, how do you determine when you can make that call? You know, everyone's kind of waiting and people want to be first, but they also want to be correct. Like, what is that process like? We really want to be correct. But the other part of it is it's important to deliver an explanation. And that's something that's very important to me and to my team. Ultimately, we're all going to know who wins. Right. But I think where we try to distinguish ourselves is can we explain what we're seeing as we see it? And can we explain for people what's happening? And I think that's where the power comes in. And that's where the analytics really have to focus. The way that we do that, and to your point about everyone does it differently, the way that we try to do it is first you look for patterns. And here's what I mean by patterns. Can you compare the way a given candidate is doing across a number of precincts, across a number of counties, to the past vote, to what we know of partisanship in those places? One of the things, you know, statistically, you're always looking for that pattern, and that's what gives you confidence. When a pattern emerges that is repeated and repeated such that you see a good estimate, that gives you more confidence. And that, in sort of, you know, layman's terms is effectively what you're looking for in all of that. As we start to see a good estimate under those criteria, then we'll, we'll start to tell you, well, this race is leaning this way. Well, this race may be even be likely for a candidate, though it's not quite there yet. As we get down to maybe smaller amounts of votes counted, then it becomes almost more straightforward math, which is, okay, say there's 10,000 votes remaining, and this candidate is 12,000 votes behind. Well, that's probably not <laughs> looking very looking very good for them. So that's where we talk about outstanding vote. And that's another approach to being able to say whether or not somebody can ultimately win or lose. A lot of races are, are close, and it, it takes a while. Uh, 
2000, I think, will go down kind of in infamy. 2016 did not go the way a lot of the polling said it would. And it took a while for 2020. I'm I'm curious how you all navigate those really close races and sort of like even the thought process, you know, in the newsroom at that time. The uh, thought process on a very close race hinges a lot on understanding how many ballots are left to count. Because what you can do is you can see, given regions or counties, you know from the past vote, you know from their partisanship, you know from their demographics, something about how we might imagine they will vote or they have voted. Now, of course, there's always some difference and you have to allow for that. But you can start to get an estimate of what is the type of vote that's outstanding. So if it's very close, and let's say there's a major city where Democrats almost always do extremely well that's remaining, you can say, and we often do, look, these are Democratic areas. And so when those votes do come in, we can expect, in my example, the Democratic candidate to catch up, and vice versa. Well, there's a lot of, let's say, rural counties where Republicans tend to do better. There's a lot of rural counties still remaining out there. So we know when those votes come in, that the Republican is going to do better or the Republican is going to catch up. And so in very close races, you're looking at those kinds of analyses to understand what could happen. And then ultimately, you know, in a very straightforward way, can this candidate, the trailing candidate, then catch up? But again, at every stretch, I want to be able to say and tell you, this is what we're seeing and this is the story that it tells. Perhaps to continue my example, we've got a candidate that is lagging, let's say a Democratic candidate is lagging Joe Biden's performance in precinct after precinct, county after county. You start to establish a pattern. That's not only whether or not we might project that race, but there's a story in that. Did Democrats turn out as much? Was there more crossover voting for or against that candidate than we might have expected? There's a political story in it. And I think people want to hear that. And I think that's what we try to deliver. As a journalist and as someone who has also covered politics, I think one thing that's fascinating to me, especially talking to people who are like, you know, veterans in the game who have been doing this, is how do you take all of this data, all of these numbers, and find the story behind it, you know? Like, how do you get all this raw information and find out what's going on with the people behind it? Some of that comes from asking them directly. And, you know, if I sort of put the pollster's hat on for a second here, we're always hoping to ask people the question that cuts to the way in which they're thinking about the election. So, for example, in this cycle, we've identified a group, we call them pressured parents. And it comes out of just lots of data, and we've done so many interviews and so much polling over this cycle, where we found people, these in this case parents, telling us that they thought their kids were negatively impacted during the pandemic, during COVID. And now there's sort of this double whammy because they tell us they feel pressure over inflation and that it's it squeezed their budgets and they're under financial stress. So we take these pressured parents and we say, okay, n- not just how are you going to vote, but why? What are you voting on? Well, there's they're fairly closely split between Democrats and Republicans. On one hand, they tend to call the Republican Party extreme and aren't necessarily in sync with them on abortion. But at the same time, there's blame, plenty of blame to go around in their view for what's happened with inflation. And so the Democrats are not off the hook on that in their minds. And that's an example of a group that we try to describe for the wider audience through the lens of the way they see the election and with the lens of the way they see their decision. So to your question about telling the story for people, I think wherever possible that we can let people tell it for themselves, that's something I feel really strongly about um, and I think is a is really the role of polls. I, I understand a lot of people try to lean on them as predictive and who's going to win, but but that's the real power of what we're trying to do, to deliver to the wider electorate an understanding of who we are and who your fellow Americans are and what they're thinking and why. Sort of another curious question I have, and I guess this is, you know, the journalism question for the ages, but how do you balance the need to be correct 
with, you know, that desire to tell a different story than the competition? Well, I don't know that it's necessarily telling a different one, but I think it's it's the looking for the news, which to us is something about the electorate that explains the way the world works, something about the way that people have decided or the way they've approached things that teaches you something about the country you live in. And if we can do that, regardless of what others are doing, um, then that's the goal, right? That's the goal. That's why someone, I hope, would read our polls or tune in to what we're doing. Because ultimately, I think that's what people are looking for. They want to understand the world around them. And if they can understand, even if they're not, they're not necessarily going to agree with the person, you know, across the political aisle or et cetera, but you do want to understand your country. And even if you are a strong partisan, I always say it's important to understand the other side. Maybe you can change mind, change their minds. Maybe that's some, you know, information you can use. It's much more useful than just knowing who wins or loses and kind of explaining backwards out of that, right? You don't necessarily just reason from results. You want to reason from the analytics of understanding what people are thinking and why and what the what the possibilities are as well. I think when people think of Election Day, or at least when I do, I think of people, you know, standing in line. Like there's always, I feel like there's always B-roll of people standing outside, staying in line after polls have closed in Georgia. For some reason, Like, that is just one of the things that comes to mind. How do you see that early voting and that absentee voting impacting election night this year? And I guess years to come, people vote early now. The way in which people vote has changed dramatically over the last, it's longer than the last couple of years, although during the pandemic, obviously, we saw mail balloting rise and early voting rise. Um, People are, you know, call it convenience voting. And there are so many states in which, even prior to the pandemic, had moved substantially to voting by mail, right? Especially a lot of states in the West, but states all over. And uh, that is, you know, in many ways, what we see now is that that's become partisan. And it didn't used to be. So you see the early vote and the mail vote are now more heavily used by Democrats. And Republicans tend to vote more on Election Day, or at least in the case, you know, coming in this year, say they will and was the case in the past. And, you know, I see that as related to the fact that many Republican candidates, including the former president, have kind of railed against the mail vote when in fact Republicans have voted by mail for many years as well, um, and certainly have in states, uh, and you can I can name a few, where Republicans do very well on the mail balloting. But that notwithstanding, uh, we do see that difference, and, you know, it's certainly related to partisan views. To answer your short question about how the early vote affects things, that's one way for certain. And then also, I mean, people spend a lot of time reading the tea leaves on the early vote because you get that. It's publicly available. So you can look at the demographics of who has requested and returned. A lot of states make that publicly available. As people shift through that, there are states where this year we've seen it be much older. So to the point of a lot of uh, folks over 65 are voting early or by mail. And there are places where the younger voters have yet to vote early or by mail. And on balance, that probably bodes well for Republicans because older folks um, vote Republican more than younger folks do. And yet there's still plenty of votes to come. So that might be what the early vote says. And yet there's still election day to go. So, you know, there's only so far you can take in reading that. But what we will do when we get to election night is we'll have that sense of who's already cast a ballot. We, of course, don't know how they voted, but we can make some inferences, again, based on demographics or in states that have party registration, what the party registration is, and then we'll know what remains. And you'll have a sort of sense of, okay, this is what the party, you know, the party that hasn't voted as much by, on, uh, by mail needs to catch up. So one thing that is true right now is that the trust in media and in the democratic process is starting to dwindle. I'm wondering how that has impacted what you do, if at all. 
I know that from our polling, that decline in trusted institutions, many institutions, has been out there. What we do and what I try to do is be as absolutely transparent as possible. It is one reason that we have our data desk right there in the studio. It's a reason that I can talk to you, not anybody else, and I'm the one actually making the projections. And I am saying uh, what we know and what we don't know. And I'm going to tell you what's been counted and what hasn't been counted. And my hope is that through that transparency, what people will see is that the U.S. election process is, in fact, terrific. And I tell you that from my standpoint as someone who has watched these votes come in for many cycles and many years. It is accurate. It is fair to the final results. And I would say to people, don't just watch and wait to see who wins. Watch to see the process unfold and have patience as it does. Sometimes votes are counted quickly. Sometimes they're counted slowly. And either way, that's okay. There are states we know right now will not count all of their votes on election night. That is typical, whether it's California, whether it's um, well, I could name any, I could name a number of them, Washington, etc. They're not all going to get processed and get counted in quick, quick ways, but that's okay. And what we're ultimately looking for is that result and what people have decided, and it'll get there when it gets there. And that's that's part of it, and that's part of the answer to how you. Uh, keep people's trust, which which I think I like to think we have, but I think that we continue to try to earn it by being that transparent about what we're seeing. Awesome. Well, Anthony, thank you so much. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure. So now you know how news networks get their data and analyze it. But was it always this way? Find out after the break. Welcome back to The Weeds. We've been learning about how elections are called by the news networks, which got us thinking, how long have we been doing it this way? And what happens when news organizations get it wrong? We wanted to dive into a little history on how we got here. So we talked to Mike Wagner. I am a professor in the School of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, where I also direct the Center for Communication and Civic Renewal, and I do research and teach in the areas of political communication, journalism, politics, and elections uh, here at Wisconsin. This comes out on Election Day. Likely, people are listening as the returns are coming in. Maybe they're listening the next day as returns are coming in. What do you think it's good for the average person to know while they watch those returns come in? I think the first thing to know is that the result is already existing. Somebody already won. We're just counting. You know, if you have a jar full of pennies, however much money is in there is how much money you have. But until you dump them out and count them, you don't know how much money it is. But the number of pennies doesn't change because you count them. And so one thing we should know is that there's already a winner. It's not a game. There's not somebody vaulting into the lead or anything like that. Another thing we should know is that in most cases, there are observers representing both parties watching the counting of the ballots so that there's no shenanigans going on. Um, What we should also know is that there are rules that are set in place to automatically, in many states, trigger recounts if the election is really close. And most states have provisions to where a candidate can request a recount. And if the election wasn't close, then the candidate might have to pay for it themselves, but they can ask for one. And so there are many mechanisms overseeing how we do things. First, the people are are professional appointees. They're not rabid partisans. They're watched by rabid partisans, so that the process, you know, has other people's eyes on it. They're they're following specific rules. They're explaining those things transparently and in real time. And if we want to count again, we can. I'm curious, when did we start using our current method of calling elections? How did we get here? Well, you know, we've been doing uh, election calls this way for several decades, although 
the country has changed how they do that process. And so for a long time, uh, folks relied on exit polls to be in, in these decision desk rooms uh, at, at the major networks and, and the Associated Press and, and, and the like. And now uh, some organizations still do use exit polling and others don't. And so they, they vary a bit uh, in how they do it. But we've been using projections developed from exit polling, as well as combining those projections with the actual raw counts on the ground by knowing where, in terms of which precincts the the count is coming in, how many votes are still left to come in, are those in precincts that tend to vote for one party or the other uh, with respect to their behavior in past elections. Like, we've used all that information for for several decades. Why is it that it's the news media who tends to make these calls? Why do we turn to the Associated Press and the NEP to find out who's winning a race? Well, because elections get certified in a much more slow manner. So election certification tends to take a while. Uh, Each state does it differently. And so it's not an immediate kind of decision that gets made. And because of the nature of the news media and our information ecology and our desire to know things now, news organizations inform the public of who is going to win, which is not the same thing as who won, but as who who is going to win. And so they, they make a call it has no, uh, you know, enforceable policy to it, but uh, it is something that uh, the major networks in the AP do. I, I imagine both as a service to voters, but also uh, as a part of the competition they have with each other about trying to draw uh, viewers to their uh, their platforms. Okay, so we know that it's a lot of media organizations, and we kind of have a feel for the technology we have now. But the internet didn't always exist. Phones didn't always exist. What are some of the ways we did this before? So the way that we tended to do this before involved a lot more of a reliance on exit polls, where uh, consortiums of folks who were interested in making these calls would have people go out to various uh, polling places across the country and then ask people when they came out of uh, their their ballot, you know, or their voting booth, you know, who did you vote for? And then they would ask them a set of other questions about, say, their their gender, their uh, race or ethnicity, their partisanship, maybe maybe income and education, a few other kinds of factors so that we could help explain and understand why people voted uh, the way that they did. Uh, And then we would use these to make projections about the way uh, elections were, were likely to go. The more we learn about exit polling, the more we learn that they're pretty good, but they're not so good that they're perfectly reliable, especially in really close races. So in a presidential election year in Mississippi, an exit poll is probably enough to tell us who won right when the polls close. But in Wisconsin or Pennsylvania, they could make errors that might lead us down a path of calling an election incorrectly. Are there notable elections, and, you know, we'll leave 2016 out of this, that stand out to you as failures or successes when it comes to calling races. You know, what are turning points that brought us to the system we have today? I would say the most prominent failure we've ever had was in 2000, when then-Governor of Texas George W. Bush and son of the first President Bush was running against Vice President Al Gore. Back at CBS News election headquarters in New York, excruciatingly close. Al Gore, 192 electoral votes. George Bush with 185, it takes 270 to win. In that election in 2000, uh, Gore won the popular vote but lost the Electoral College, not unlike uh, 2016 and, and Hillary Clinton. What was different about 2000 is that major networks called the state of Florida for Gore, even though Gore didn't win Florida. A big call to make, CNN announces that we call Florida in the Al Gore column. This is a state both campaigns desperately wanted to win. Part of the way through the night, networks realized as they kept seeing vote totals come in across the precincts in Florida that they were no longer confident that Gore had won and that, in fact, Bush also had a path to victory. And so then they took the call back. Stand by, stand by, uh, CNN right now is moving our earlier declaration of Florida back to the too-close-to-call column. Ah. The NBC Nightly News anchor Tom Brokaw, who was leading NBC's coverage, famously said something along the lines of, we don't just have egg in our face, we've got omelet all over our suits uh, at this point and on our face and everywhere else. They gave a, a state to Gore, they took it back. Hmm. That would be something if the networks managed to blow it twice in one night. 
<laughs> Speak for yourself. Right. <laughs> there was no longer going to be a presidential concession that night because there ended up being a, a recount, and then that recount got adjudicated. It went all the way to the Supreme Court, which eventually led to a decision that res- where the end result was that George W. Bush became president. Um, but there we had a case where there was a call, and then it got taken away. And so that that's the kind of embarrassing outcome that people who make these calls want to avoid the most. Okay, let's stay in the year 2000. Britney Spears was on the radio. (laughs) As far as my CD player, Destiny's Child Independent Woman Part 1 was getting a ton of spins. You know, I probably had a Tamagotchi. That was where we were in the culture. But politically, how much has changed since... 2000. I'm I'm especially thinking about political polarization. Is it is it similar? Is it wildly different? What's what's changed between now and then? It's fair to say that the country was polarized in 2000, but things are far worse today. We are far more divided today than we were in in 2000. And so, um, over the last 22 years, there have been increasing differences between Republicans and Democrats uh, in terms of their policy positions with uh, especially growing extremity uh, on the ideological right. There's also more ideological consistency, which is to say that if you know somebody's opinion about, say, abortion, you're more likely to also be able to correctly predict their opinion about tax policy or education policy. So we're more consistent than we used to be, especially those of us who vote. And so we're a little more divided um, ideologically uh, than we were in the past. Now, there's a whole host of people who avoid politics altogether. There's a group of people who care about politics but don't have views that match either of the two parties, and they are sort of in this constant push-pull between which side they're going to support in a particular election. But way more of us are more polarized now than we were in 2000. And in fact, some scholars point to the 2000 election as a punctuated point that polarization really took off, right? The Supreme Court made a decision that functionally chose our president. And so that took an institution that was, you know, traditionally seen as nonpartisan, and many people viewed uh, the court as making a partisan choice, which then diminished the court's own standing in in the mind of the public. Wow. Are there... That feels, uh, it, it just feels like a very familiar conversation to now. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit more? Like, is the 2000 election call kind of the root of all the stuff we got going on right now? I mean, I'm guessing it's probably much more complicated than that one instance, but it is an instance. A tree has many roots. And so I would say that the 2000 election call is one of the roots that can help us understand where we're at today, right? Because it showed how close Florida and other swing states are. There's just, there's a set of states that have very close elections in statewide races almost every time. But it also is a root of the growing mistrust that many people have in the news media. Here are people who are supposed to be reporting to us the verifiable truth. They tell us Vice President Gore won Florida. Then um, they decide maybe he didn't. So we're going to take back that call. And on the one hand, we might view that as gee, that's uh, an excellent example of transparency, right? Journalists in real time saying, we thought X was true, but Y is true, and we were wrong, and we are telling you so. And you might think of that as an opportunity that would lead to building trust. But in the growing partisan contentiousness that we had at that time and have more of today, more people view the news media skeptically Say, oh, why why did you tell that lie about Gore? Were you trying to make it so he won? Were you trying to persuade Bush voters in West Coast states not to show up because they thought the election would be a foregone conclusion and their polls are still open and you're telling us Gore won and then you you take it away later when you can, you know, like there's all these kinds of conspiracy theories that start. And so we see the roots of the flowering of conspiracy theories that we have today back, you know, in this election as well. But but I, I would say it's too much to say it was the call of Florida or the 2000 election that's the, the cause of, of what's going on now. Are there any controversies other than, you know, the 2000 election, the big one, that can give us context on the politicization of calling races that we have now? What can we learn from those situations? Yes, there, there one of the elections... I. 
if memory serves right, it was it was the 2012 election where President Obama was running for re-election against Mitt Romney, who, who's now a, a U.S. senator. And Fox News called a state for Obama. And Carl Rowe, who had been um, a key advisor to President George W. Bush, was on the Fox News television desk, not the decision desk where the decision about calling is made, but on the, you know, on on television talking about what was happening. Mm -hmm. And those are two different things, I think. Like, that can be very difficult. We're like, oh, it's the decision desk. You all are doing it here. It's not not Anderson Cooper or or Tucker Carlson or Rachel Maddow or Lester Holt. They're not making the calls. They're telling us who about the calls that were made by the folks in the decision desk room. And so, so Carl Rowe, doesn't believe the call and and literally wants to go on air and go into the decision desk room and ask them why they did what they did. I think this is premature. We got 70. We got a quarter of the vote. I understand what Carl's saying, but if you look at some of these counties that are still left out there, there are votes, a lot of votes left for Obama. I don't know what the outcome is going to be, but you should. We got to be careful about calling things when we have like 991 votes separating the two candidates and a quarter of the vote yet to count. Well, folks, <laughs> uh, so maybe not so fast. But that was a, a kind of a, a dramatic example of how even the folks who were charged with putting these results into context and explaining to us what's happening on air as it happens sometimes have emotional uh, reactions to the decisions that the people doing the calls make. And then we saw the same thing in 2020 where, where Fox News uh, was one of the uh, organizations that called Arizona relatively early, which deeply upset Republicans who uh, wanted Arizona to go to Trump to increase the chances that he would hold on to the White House. And so in that case, the decision desk uh, made a decision that was different than what the, the hosts on the programs uh, on that same network w- would prefer, uh, which is an example of the independence that the people on the decision desk have as compared to the people on the anchor desk. All right. Well, Let's go from 2012 and fast forward four years to 2016. You know, Justin Bieber is at the top of all the pop charts. Vine was on its way out. R.I.P. a legend. We were all playing Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go to the polls. And (laughs) man, was that an election season. How was November 2016 different from other ways races have been called? I think that first, the decision rooms, the decision desks at all the networks and the AP were far more reticent to make a call until they were just incontrovertibly sure, until there is not a mathematical possibility that things could change, we won't make a call. And so that means that the calls go later into the night. And it kind of also exacerbates this false narrative of how we as citizens consume elections. So when the polls close in a state, there's already a winner. Everybody's voted. Some One person has more votes than the other person, unless there is somehow a, a tie, right? But the, the election's over and there is a winner. But that's not how it gets reported to us. It gets reported to us as, well, with 1% of precincts reporting, candidate A is up by 12,000 votes. And then 20 minutes later, we have another batch of votes. Ooh, now candidate B's in the lead. No, they're not. (laughs) There's already a winner. We're just counting. We're just trying to figure out who won. But the way that elections get reported to us on election night makes it seem like there's a winner and a loser and and, and someone's leaping into the lead like it's a football game. But it's not like a football game where a quarterback can throw a Hail Mary at the end of the fourth quarter and give their team the lead. The votes are already cast in an election, and we're just counting. But we treat them like it's a game, which then diminishes our trust in the system when we learn, oh, gosh, the person who was ahead this whole time lost at the end. Why was that? Well, maybe it was because there was a batch of early and absentee votes that were legally prohibited from being counted until Election Day, were open, taken out of the mail, verified, and then counted in a big batch later. And that's why there was the change, right? And so so that's one way it's different. Another way that 2016 was different was that exit polls became less of a driver of the decision desk calls and the actual votes on the ground and doing the math to say, is there any way the other person could win this state? What was part of the conversation? So they, they got a lot more sophisticated with the math than they were uh, when exit polls were really the, the driving factor of, of making these calls. 
I want to stay with 2016 and zoom in on your home state, Wisconsin. You know, initially it was projected for Clinton, but it went to Trump. What what happened there? You know, a few things could have happened, right? One thing that could have happened was the people who decided who they were voting for at the last minute broke systematically to Trump. So it could be that the polls were right all along, but the people who weren't yet sure what they were going to do all broke for Trump. It also could be that the polls were underestimating particular pockets of voters, especially non-college-educated white middle-class voters or lower economic class voters who maybe typically wouldn't be thought of as a likely voter because they often sit elections out. But in this particular election, either because of their dislike for Hillary Clinton or their fandom of, of Donald Trump, decided to show up and vote this time. And so I think that part of the problem was the mix of how pollsters decided who was a likely voter and who wasn't. Part of it was the late-breaking voters uh, going to Trump. Part of it was voter turnout and various changes in, in rules about who, who can turn out to vote or, or how what they have to show when they uh, go to vote. And so like states that have, you know, voter ID laws sometimes see a reduction in turnout in particular populations, especially black populations, older populations, less economically well-off populations where they might not have a driver's license and not maybe see the benefit of figuring out how to get the free state ID you can get because that's just, you know, extra work, you know, that they maybe not don't want to go through. So all those things contribute. But, you know, part of it, I think, was was just a misunderstanding amongst pollsters of who was going to be a likely voter in that election. And now I want to bring us to 2020. WAP by Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion was everywhere, but we were all listening to it at home while we were baking bread because of the pandemic. What happened in the 2020 election? We waited several days before that election was called. A lot of states, like Wisconsin included, have rules about how you count early and absentee votes. Like, it might be efficient just to count them as they come in. But in Wisconsin, you can't even start counting them until Election Day. And some states or counties have rules that say, for all the early votes, we're not going to count them in the precincts where they were cast. We're going to bring them all to a central location and count them all there. This just slows the process down. And so it becomes much more difficult to count quickly, especially as more and more voters vote early or by absentee ballot. The parties want to bank votes for their side as early as they can, and so they're pushing their voters to to vote early. But if your state doesn't let you start counting those ballots right away, you've got to open the envelope, you've got to verify that the the appropriate measures were taken on, on that ballot. Did they sign it? Did they write their address? Was there a witness? Did the witness sign it? And so these things just take longer than just running through, you know, a Scantron machine, the votes that someone turns in by showing up at the their polling place on election day. And so it takes longer in that regard. And then, you know, a lot of these uh, places are just understaffed. And so it takes longer uh, to count the votes. Many votes, uh, most votes, I would say, actually are, are counted under the watchful eye of observers from both parties. And so sometimes if there's a dispute, then those have to be talked out. And so the, these things can all add to the time that it takes uh, to count to count the votes. So it sounds like the overarching theme of the election results is sit tight and have patience. The professionals have this covered. Thanks so much, Mike. Hey, my pleasure. That's all for us today. Thank you to Rob Farbman, Anthony Salvanto, and Mike Wagner for joining me. Our producer is Sophie Lalonde. Christian Ayala engineered this episode. Libby Nelson is our editorial advisor. Our deputy editorial director is A.M. Hall. Special help this week came from our executive director of audio, Catherine Wells. And I'm your host, John Quillen Hill. The Weeds is part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. <laughs>